You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I haven't had much to say about the Democratic primary here at the top of the show, except, of course, to say that I am blue no matter who. And please wake me. Wake me from this nightmare when we have a nominee. I will write that woman a check or man. Could be a man. I'll write that man a check. I'll put up a yard sign. I'll implore my readers and listeners to do the same. And while I did donate a little money to Mayor Pete early on, very little money, that was back at the start of the race, back when Pete was the radical, or at least he floated one pretty radical proposal – Remake and retake our stolen, now thoroughly corrupted, Supreme Court. I wanted to see him on the debate stage make the case for adding justices to the Supreme Court. So I made a donation. I've been less impressed with Pete since. And man, that small town mongering was the last straw. If I may digress, and there's always a risk I will, it's my show, I digress a lot. Shortly before the Iowa caucuses, which Pete may or may not have won, who knows, Pete tweeted, we need a president whose values were shaped by the American heartland. Do we? Really? The same heartland that gave us Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader? The same heartland that rejects choice and climate science and the contributions of immigrants? That heartland? You know, 80% of Americans live in urban areas. Cities, the land where the actual hearts of most actual Americans actually reside. If the Democrats ran, organized and ran, as the party of urban America, if the Democrats fought to turn out voters in cities big and small, in blue states and red states, we might actually start winning elections around here. Because remember, kids, there is no such thing as a blue state. They are all red by acreage and surface area red. It's just the cities in some states are big enough, blue enough, and motivated enough to vote. And when cities turn out to vote in the face of GOP voter suppression efforts, we win Senate seats and electoral college majorities. But that's not what I wanted to complain about at the top of this week's show. I wanted to complain about or make a suggestion about, perhaps too late with the suggestion, but still I wanted to make a suggestion about how to talk to voters about Medicare for all, ending private insurance and replacing it with a government-run program. That is the radical proposal. Expanding on the system we already have, that is the moderate position. Our healthcare system is a disaster. Think of it as a burning building. Radical Dems want us to run from that burning building. Moderate Dems want us to move to the living room from the dining room and wait out the fire. And Republicans, of course, want to lock us all inside and pour gasoline on the roof. We need to get out of that building. We need radical change. But people, a.k.a. voters, a.k.a. not always the brightest bunch, are easily spooked by radical change. And talking about doing away with private insurance and employer-provided insurance is going to scare a lot of voters. And it's probably a non-starter in the Senate, even if the Democrats retake it, which is why AOC sees compromise coming, compromise on the horizon, even if Bernie wins. The worst case scenario, AOC told HuffPo, we compromise deeply and we end up getting a public option. Is that a nightmare? I don't think so. You know what, AOC? I don't think so either. And here's what a Dem, any Dem running for president could and should say, and sorry I'm late with this, something Dems could and should say to bring along the radicals without scaring off the moderates. I, your president, 
if you elect me president, I am not going to end private health insurance. I'm not going to pretend that I could end private health insurance. You're going to end it. The American people are going to end it if that's what you want. Not by picking a particular candidate in this primary, but by electing a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House. Democrats, any one of the Democrats running for president and a Democratic-controlled Congress will work together to create a robust public option, Obamacare's missing piece. And then Americans can vote with their feet. Americans who want Medicare, which is pretty popular with those Americans who already have it, can get the public option. But Americans who like their private plans, you can keep them. But we're going to let you in on a little secret. Private plans are good in theory, but people who've actually had to interact with their insurance companies, people who've gotten sick and had to fight their insurers for the care they or their loved ones needed, they hate their private insurance and they can't wait to get on the public option. And campaign speechifying. If the public option is better, if it's more comprehensive, if it's less complicated, Americans will switch to it. And then who ends private health insurance in America? Not a Democratic president, not a Democratic Congress. The American people will end private health insurance. That's probably what Elizabeth Warren should have said instead of releasing a plan to pay for Medicare for all, instead of getting rope-a-doped by the political press and Bernie Sanders, whose highest profile backer, AOC, now admits that Warren was right. What Warren was forced to admit months ago is most likely true. Universal coverage, if we get it, is going to come in stages, not overnight. A public option first, and then one day, Medicare for all. Okay, coming up on today's show, my hometown newspaper, Seattle's only newspaper, The Stranger, has a pot columnist because of course we do. His name is Lester Black, and he joins me on the show to answer some of your weed-related questions. Lester joins us for a little bit on the micro, the free edition of the Savage Lovecast, and he sticks around for a whole lot of the magnum edition, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, no ads, more guests, all that coming up today. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis pansexual woman in the UK. I'm calling because I have a problem with my best friend's boyfriend. He's not an asshole, but he is very thoughtless regarding his big and small choices around her, which makes it hard for her to manage her chronic illness. Most of the time, when she speaks to me about him, it's to tell me about something selfish he's done that's going to have ramifications for her, and frankly, he doesn't impress me much in person either. They've been together for two and a half years now, but I feel like I'm just waiting for her to become uncomfortable enough to break up with him, and she's just waiting for him to be ready to move in with her even though she's asked him to do this twice, and both times he has said no. His family are wealthy and spoiled, and his friends are ignorant and even racist. She doesn't have a great track record with choosing guys. She herself admits that she wants to be perceived as the cool girl, but also that she doesn't expect any guy to do more than the bare minimum for her, because no guy is going to want to deal with the difficult parts of her illness. I obviously disagree, but I have to be careful how I express myself as I have actively chosen not to date cis straight men anymore, and I sense that in some way this invalidates my opinion in her eyes. But the bottom line is that I have not seen her bloom or thrive as a result of being with this dude. I haven't seen her become a more kinder, more aware, brighter person. I've watched her become more drained, more anxious and appeasing. I've expressed my concerns before, 
but she has stubbornly ignored them. And I feel like the time has come to become more explicit, but I don't want to put her in a him or me situation. I'm also running the risk of her hearing this, as I recently converted her to this show. But I don't know who else to ask for advice on this, and I feel stuck, because I love it to bits. What are your thoughts, Dan? What do I think? I'm not sure what I think really matters. You turned your friend onto the show, you got her to start listening to the show, and then you called in with a question about her, about her relationship, about how you relate to her about her relationship, and it seems to me that just hearing you out was the goal and not hearing me out. But I'll give my two cents. Lots of people have friends whose partners they don't think are good for them. And you can speak your piece. You can tell your friend how you feel, that you don't think it's a great relationship. But if the relationship isn't abusive and you can't really justify some sort of screaming, yelling, crockery smashing, figuratively, not literally, intervention, then you just have to wait it out. Let your friend work it out for herself that this isn't a great relationship, that this guy is a spoiled and selfish asshole and she isn't thriving in this relationship. She knows that's how you feel. She knows that's your read on the situation because she just heard you say all that and probably not for the first time. So you've said all that in the past and now you've said it on my show in a venue where she'd hear it again. And if she chooses to stay in this relationship despite your feelings about it and what might be a completely accurate read on your part that has nothing to do with your bias against cis straight men. You you could argue that if this person was a rich and spoiled asshole with a bunch of racist friends and they were trans and queer, you wouldn't like him any better. And I think that would be true. But if she chooses to stay with him, she's an adult. She gets to make her own choices. If she is indeed, and if she's listening, if you are indeed choosing to stay with this person who isn't very good to you or kind to you because you have a chronic illness and you feel you can do no better and you can't ask more of a partner than you get from this person who isn't giving you much, well, that's a shitty reason to stay with someone. And if the person that you're with and staying with for those reasons is a shitty person and they realize that you are staying with them because you feel you can do no better, they will weaponize that. They will use that against you. That's a kind of leverage that a shitty person, if indeed this guy is a shitty person, will use against their partner. Because if you're staying because you can do no better, then there's literally no shitty thing they can do, no awful thing they can ask, no thing that you're entitled to or deserve that they can deny you without having to fear that you'll leave them because you've already made it clear that however shitty they are, you're staying. All right. That's my two cents. But again, I don't think you caller were after my two cents. I think you wanted to share yours again and in a new venue. And on the off chance that this is as bad a relationship as you say that it is, I was happy to let you do that. Hey Dan, 23 year old NB person from SC calling. I have a question about my boyfriend and his best friend. My boyfriend and I have been together a little over two years. Uh, he's had this online best friend, who is female, uh, for a little over ten years. They've never met, but right before I met him, he had confessed his love for her and told her that he didn't want anyone else but her ever. He calls her his peach cobbler and, up until about six months ago, had been frequently sexting and exchanging news. That alone didn't bother me, but... What bothered me was the fact that this was mixed with talk about how much he longed to be with her and meet her and how much he loves her and how much he wants to be in a relationship with her and me. She has a boyfriend, too, and both her boyfriend and I are pretty much monogamous. 
I've always been extremely uncomfortable with their relationship. He would always go to her when he was upset instead of coming to me. About six months ago, I'd had enough and calmly expressed my feelings to him and got him to understand why parts of his relationship with her made me uncomfortable. We compromised and said only two rules. No more lovey-dovey talk and no more sexting or nudes. He could be her friend and keep the nudes he already had of her. She was also made aware of these rules. But recently, though, those rules were broken. She clearly baited him into asking her for nudes by asking for advice on selling nude content, which she knows my boyfriend knows nothing about. He fell for it, I found out, and I was very upset. He was genuinely sorry and told me he forgot about our rule and told her and me that he wasn't going to do it again. He had given me his social media passwords, and he has mine as well, and going through their messages, it's very apparent that she has no respect for me or our relationship. She keeps trying to bait him, and it seems like she thinks she doesn't have to change her relationship dynamic with him because I'm in the picture. Because I've made her upset in the past, she's blocked me, and I'm not allowed to talk to her. My boyfriend's friendship with her is very special to him, and I don't want to take that away from him. But he believes that the sun shines out of her asshole, and she could do no wrong. I'm still uncomfortable with the whole thing, but I'm trying to be an adult about this and compromise. What should I do, Dan? I don't want to bring up the serenity prayer too often, because then you just sound like some shitty Episcopalian priest who's phoning it in. But you might want to get the serenity prayer tattooed in reverse on your forehead so you see it in the mirror every morning when you brush your teeth. You can't control this. This relationship has been going on, this perfect online relationship. And it's perfect in part because it is online, because they've never had to meet in person, because they've never had to smell each other's farts, because they've never really had to risk having a fight. All of that is reserved for their meat sack relationship, their in real life relationships. All of that conflict, stress, grind of daily life, that's for you. And hopefully joy and sex and companionship and intimacy, that's for you too. But the reason this relationship with this other person that your boyfriend has never met seems so idyllic and perfect is because it's a fantasy. It's a shared fantasy. It's a myth these two people have created together online, but it is a fantasy and it's not one that you can compete with. So I would encourage you to stop trying to dictate to your boyfriend what he may or may not say, think, feel about this person who exists as kind of some sort of extended Dungeons Dragon role play in his head. Stop torturing yourself by reading their DMs, their direct messages, not their dungeon masters. Stop policing this, the energy that you are expending, attempting to control something that you ultimately cannot control is going to destroy your relationship in the end. You say that this relationship with this woman is special to your boyfriend and you don't want to take it from him. Well, in addition to not being able to take it from him, and it's been going on for a decade, eight years longer than you two have been together, you're not, obviously not, going to be able to dictate the contours of it to him, what he's allowed to say, think, or feel to this person. You can ask him to dial it back so that it's not so present and intrusive so that you are capable of suspending your disbelief and forgetting that he has this online connection. But if it's torture for you, if you can't suspend your disbelief to know that your boyfriend is essentially having an emotional affair that has a sexting and dirty pick swapping component, if that is just torture and you can't get past it, and it's going to destroy your relationship if it's thrumming along there in the background out of sight, but you aren't capable of putting it out of mind. Well, then there are two options on the table. You break up with your boyfriend and you let him have this relationship with this person that he's never met. 
or you order him to end it. Cut off all contact, block this woman, and that's it. It's you or her, and he is going to have to choose. It's not always the case when the person who issues the it's that person or me ultimatum (laughs) discovers that it's not them, that it's that other person, but it happens often enough that you should brace yourself for that potentiality, particularly when you factor in the fact that this is your boyfriend's longer-term relationship, and probably in his mind, a successful long-term relationship, and a perfect and idyllic one, because he's never had to smell his bitch's farts. Dan, can you please clear up some for me with regard to women? I know I'm asking you, a gay man, this question, and maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but I figure you have enough experience accumulated over the years that you would be able to help me with this. So I'm a straight male, uh, and I was just dating this girl, and this isn't the first time something like this happened, but essentially it ended, and one of the main reasons was that she wasn't ready for a relationship because she had gotten out of one not too long ago. Now, as a man, I mean, okay, certainly I can get out of a relationship. Okay, that's rough. But if like J-Lo walks up, I'm, I'm going to be like, okay, you know, let's put that shit aside and let's get it, get it, get it tight. You know what I mean? So <laughs> when it comes to, to women, I mean, let's say I'm like Brad Pitt walking up. Are you, is, suddenly are these, this uh, situation where you're getting over this relationship, does that evaporate too? Or is this legitimate? I don't know, because I just feel like, so yeah, certainly we get out of relationships and it can be tough. But if we then go on to meet someone else who's great, are we really going to sacrifice that person? Because we feel like we have, we're not ready. Like, I, I just feel, I don't know, especially as a man, like I, I feel like I've been out, like even with this relationship, I just got out of this one and I feel like I'm recovering from it. But at the same time, if someone's like totally awesome, hot, like checks all the boxes, Again, maybe this, sorry, this is my ego talking as if like this is, this is me. I'm assuming I do all this for this woman. Clearly, I probably didn't. And nonetheless, please clear this up. Is this a re- is this actually true, or is this just like her? Do, do women just say this to like, I don't know, as like a way to get out of it, like one of those like, oh, it's not you, it's me kind of things. Like, what what is going on here? Because I was dating this girl, and it seemed like everything was great, and we did I did all these, everything was awesome, and so uh, I don't know. I'm not ready for a relationship right now. It is a lie, almost always a lie. And it is a perfectly legitimate lie. It is a face-saving, ego-sparing, little white lie. And what the person is saying, almost invariably, and it's not just straight women who say this to straight men. Gay men say this to each other. Straight men say this to straight women. What that person is saying is... To borrow your language, yeah, you don't check enough boxes for me and I'm looking around, I'm casting around for an excuse to exit this relationship that doesn't do you too much emotional trauma or damage. Like what if instead of people saying, I'm not ready for a relationship right now or I need to focus on work or school or it's just not the right time or I'm moving away and I don't want to do the long distance thing. What if someone sat down with an itemized list from their subjective perspective of your faults, flaws, and shortcomings that disqualified you from consideration. That would be terrible. Wouldn't you rather have, I'm not ready for a relationship right now, even though you kind of know it's a lie because it's a compassionate lie. It comes from a place of concern for your feelings, 
and consideration for leaving you in decent enough shape, not shredding you on the way out so that you're incapable of moving on and dating anyone else or trusting anyone else. Because if that person sat down and walked you through your flaws and shortcomings, you would be so self-conscious about those that you might find yourself dating someone who doesn't consider the things on that person's list to be flaws or shortcomings at all. They don't even notice them or they're irrelevant or they're actually perks in that person's eyes. But you would be so desperately insecure and worried about X, Y, and Z, whatever X, Y, and Z was on that previous person who dumped you's list that you would end up sabotaging or undermining all your future relationships. You know, we should engage in a little bit of self-scrutiny when a relationship ends for the it's not you, it's me. I'm not ready for a relationship right now. I need to focus on work and school at the moment. I don't want to do the long distance thing. We need to like scrutinize our own behavior and our own actions and make sure that there isn't something that we're doing again and again and again that's driving people away. But after scrutinizing our, our own behaviors, after maybe kicking it around with friends who hung out with us together as a couple when we were still together, you determined that it was just – you weren't right for them in their opinion for reasons that they didn't itemize. Just move the fuck on. And yeah, someone might say I'm not ready for a relationship right now to you and then meet Brad Pitt and be ready for a relationship suddenly because it was a lie when they said it to you. And it was a lie that you want to hear. You don't get to be angry about hearing that lie. What you need to hear when someone says that is, we are not compatible. I have determined I don't want to waste any more of your time. I'm going to release you so you can go out into the world and find somebody who wants to be with you. And I'm going to release you from this relationship in a condition that you're not destroyed or at a disadvantage moving into your next relationship. Because even though I don't want to be with you, I care about you. That's where I'm not ready for a relationship right now comes from. And you should be grateful when you hear that. Not angry. Hey, Dan, I'm a cisgender white male, 42 years old. So I am divorced and I went through the normal phase of dating, you know, a bunch of people. And I finally thought, okay, I'm ready to have a relationship, try to find a long-term relationship, you know, uh, Eight months had passed. Uh, I wasn't feeling as hurt and rejected. I ended up going on a date with a 30-year-old woman and had a great date, um, you know, a really good one. We had a ton of things in common. She's nerdy like me. And we uh, ended up having to talk about past sexual partners, and she asked me how many I had. And I said, I really don't know. I don't keep track. I believe more than 50, and I hope less than 100. And she goes, oh, your number's quite higher than mine. And I go, well, that's fine. You know, I don't, I don't judge anybody's numbers. It is what it is. I only dated a girl recently that had only been with one guy before me, her husband, and they'd uh, gotten a divorce. And she goes, well, she's been with one more than me. It turns out she's a 30-year-old virgin, which we talked about it because she is a very good-looking woman, smart and funny. And so I asked what happened, and she grew up in a small town, which is quite normal in the Midwest. I have only 1,000 people. Didn't really find a boyfriend she wanted then. She went to college, a small college, got on birth control. Apparently, a side effect of birth control is it killed her sex drive. She didn't even notice her sex drive was gone until she got off of it. And now um, 
she focused on her career and now she's ready for sexual relationships and such. And she wants to date me exclusively, which I have no problem with, even though I'm kind of weirded out. She's never had a relationship prior to this. She's never had sex. I know virginity's a social construct, blah, blah, blah. I understand outdated ideas, but I do believe that it should be special. It should matter. Like all sex should matter to some degree, I guess, but the first time, and I'm also kind of concerned about having a relationship with somebody that doesn't have any of these experiences. Am I just completely outdated in how I'm thinking or should I go forward and find out and because she really wants to have it right now and I'm I'm definitely hesitant to do that. We have had oral sex but I kind of feel like I want to make sure this is a real relationship before I go the next step and I know that's stupid because she's 30 years old a woman she made up her mind she's not a 16 year old who uh might get hurt she knows the pros and cons what are you afraid of what do you what do you think might happen if you're the first dick in this woman's vagina well i really do like her i do want a relationship okay great I'm then you're the of... perfect candidate for her to have her first <laughs> sexual relationship you I'm know for the man that she afraid. might want to have her first sexual relationship <laughs> with so why do you cite that as somehow disqualifying that you like well, her? I, I'm kind of afraid, uh, you know, after the first time, you know, after like six, seven months, she'll be like, I want to explore more things. I've never had these experiences. Yeah, that's a and possibility. I don't, I don't want to get my heart broken again. I already, you know, came from a, a relationship where my ex cheated on me. And so right. I'm kind of worried about that. Is your ex a virgin when you met her? No, she was not. Okay. So <laughs> your ex had plenty of experience. Yes. And she cheated on you. And this woman yes. doesn't ha- has so little experience, you're worried, dot, 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 that that means she might cheat on you. I am recovering from a broken heart, I will admit, and I okay. want to be a good guy also. Well, we, I, want, I am totally 100% on board with straight guys being good and thoughtful guys, and I don't think it's a problem you didn't jump immediately into bed with her and you're wrestling with this. But, you know, usually the issue when somebody's worried about sleeping with a virgin is kind of the opposite of, of your concern. Like a lot of people have it in their heads that if I'm the first person they have sex with, they're going to imprint on me like a duckling. And then if I want out of the relationship, I have to break their heart or they're never going away. I am not that impressive. My ego is in check. <laughs> I am not worried about that. <laughs> right. So, so you're, you're more worried about your own heart and that and you have a right to like, you know, prioritize your feelings and your comfort and, and to, you know, be tender with your own heart. But based on your own recent experience and traumatic experience and, you know, to be cheated on and, and have a marriage end is deeply traumatic or nothing about your partner being experienced protects you from the thing you're worried about this woman wanting, which is other sex partners, which even if, you know, you met her, you liked her, she wasn't a virgin. She's had 10 boyfriends. Like some of you date people for three or six months and then realize you're not compatible and it ends. And rather than viewing that as a tragedy, you can view that as, you know, a, a good short-term relationship. You had good experience. She had good experience. So, so it might just be a, a matter of like making the decision to shift your perspective, right? She might leave you for somebody else, experience or no experience. That's always a risk. Or she might decide you guys aren't right for each other after you've opened up for her. You might also decide after three or six months that she's not right for you. So the risk isn't all on your side of a broken heart. It's also on her side. Yeah, uh, you make excellent points. You always do. There's no <laughs> having sex, relationships, connection, intimacy without 
both people or all people, if it's more than two people, running those risks of hurt and heartbreak. So I can't – there's no magic wand I can wave that can you know make this into a situation where there's no risk for you. But you can be more at peace at the, with the risk if you can accept that a relationship doesn't have to last until one of you is dead for it to have been worth your time and, and, and valuable. Like so let's just game it out. You're together six months. There are, it's a great six months. You have lots of sex. After six months, it ends because you ended it or she ended it. You still had a great six months. And if you yeah. learned and you grew and she learned and she grew and the relationship isn't high conflict or abusive uh, and it ends, you know, you know, endings are always painful, but it ends in such a way that doesn't preclude you guys, you know, staying in touch or being friendly with each other. You know, if you live in a small town and you're thrown together occasionally and, and still continuing to care about each other and wanting the best for each other, even if you're not together anymore, that was a successful short term relationship. So even yeah. if it ends, there's a potential here for it to be a successful short-term relationship. There's also a potential here for it to be the relationship you're in for the rest of your life. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're making the right points. I just have to get over my preconceived, idiotic, social notions I have stuck in my head. <laughs> well, you know, you have, to, you have to push past your fears. And there's nothing about the fears that you have that are disqualifying or irrational, particularly like everybody fears these things fears, you know, the fear of opening up your heart to someone who then leaves you or rejects you. That's like, you know, that's traumatic. And so you're, you know, risking that trauma again. But you know, if you really want someone in your life, if you want that kind of connection, not having it in your life is its own kind of trauma and its own kind of pain. All right. So go thank fuck you very her. much. Dan. Go, go <laughs> fuck her and call us back in six months and let us know how it goes. I will do that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Hey, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old female living in the Pacific Northwest. I've had a lot of serious boyfriends. I've never met someone that I considered having a future with until now. I think he's A1. Uh, I'm crying and emotional and upset because I'm terrified that we won't be a good match because we come from such different worlds. And what I mean by that is uh, I grew up in, I don't know, uh, a privileged and like liberal, sensitive, politically correct family with friends who followed suit. And I think the culture that he comes from is just different. So when uh, he's with his friends, he's he's still funny, but his sense of humor is uh, vulgar and offensive. And I don't want to judge him and I don't want to police him or have a stick up my ass. I just, I don't know if I'm being an idiot by imagining a life with someone who um, might raise kids to be the same way. And we've tried having conversations about it. And I think I'm just not going to hang out with him and his friends, but I don't know. What, what would you do? How do you lovingly either help someone to become more sensitive or should I lighten up or um, I don't know. You can tell someone you don't want to judge them, you don't want to police them, then follow that up with, and I don't want to be with you either because you say shitty racist things or the person you are when you're around your friends, you're different and repulsive and hateful and unappealing and it's drying up my pussy to see you interacting with your friends. 
And then your boyfriend, who may never have critically examined his attitudes or his rapport with his friends or taken a cold, hard look at his sense of humor and how it impacts others, may be inspired to do so by your judgment, by the fact that you judged him and found him lacking in the potential future partner department. That's often what pulls people up short. You know, we were raised in certain parts of the country, we're raised in certain families or certain faith traditions, and we just accept what we were told as kids, what was normative in our communities. And sometimes our communities are really deeply shitty. And then we get out there in the world and we meet people who are from different backgrounds, different faith traditions, different communities. And the process of unlearning a lot of the shit that we were fed as children and uncritically just took on often involves the cognitive dissonance of liking someone and that person not liking the shit that's coming out of our mouths or the presumed or the attitudes that we hold that we've never had challenged or challenged ourselves. And that can inspire us to think about race, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, politics, whatever, a little more deeply and a little more critically. And it's a necessary part of growing up. And for a lot of people from shitty backgrounds with shitty friends and shitty families and shitty megachurches in their past, it's critical to be challenged like that, to be judged like that, to have their veil pierced and to have to rethink. And sometimes the stakes are I'm attracted to and in love with this person and they are going to leave me because of this stupid fucking red hat with Make America Great Again on it. And I'm going to have to now pick between this stupid red hat or this person that I love and resolve the cognitive dissonance there, hopefully in the favor of the person that I love. Not a great position to be in. I, you know, I, I can hear the pain in your voice, but you would be doing him no favors but you would be doing him potentially an enormous favor by telling him that you have no interest in judging him or policing him, but so long as he says and believes the things that he says and believes when he's around his friends or his family, you have no interest in dating him either. Hey Dan, 21-year-old, soon to be 22, year old bisexual male here in need of your advice. So... When I was 20, I met this man who was 23. For three months, we were in a friends with benefits type situation. And after those three months, we were in a relationship for nine months, eight months, uh, kind of around that. And within that time, I noticed a lot of red flags within him. First of all, he would, like he is really hateful and homophobic towards feminine guys, which is like, I, I don't understand why and but like when we were the only guy or we were the only person in the room he would be really feminine with me like when I would flirt with him he would act in a really feminine way when we had sex he was always the bottom and he would moan in a really feminine way which I don't have any problem with but I thought that was really hypocritical of him secondly he would hide slash lie about a lot of stuff like where he was where he went for how many days he's going somewhere or something thirdly well this is what broke our relationship is that he cheated on me like a week before our breakup i came to know 
that he had been cheating on me for but past two three months uh, with two three guys or possibly more I don't know but yeah when I confronted him about it he told me he confirmed that he was cheating on me and he told me and I quote here this is what he exactly told me I can find 10 other guys like you with one message I can have 10 20 people lined up in front of my house to have sex with me and I don't know that broke me somehow or whatever but after that after he told me that I had sex with him I had sex with him and that was probably the best sex I had with him because like I fucking did not care about anything at that moment I was spanking him I was choking him and he didn't even say no he clearly enjoyed all of that but anyway it's been eight months after our breakup eight months seven months after our breakup and I'm still not over him so my question is how do I get over him and second of all how do I not fall for douchebag guys like this again in my life I also have a third thing which is like I was introduced to domination and things like that because I, I used to have vanilla sex before I ha had sex with him but he was a submissive bottom and I like learned how to be a dominant top with him and stuff like that and I do really enjoy that but I don't feel comfortable doing this with other people I don't know why like even with him it took me a lot of time to actually get into that role of dominance and yeah so I don't feel comfortable doing it with other people like on the first date or second date or like on the first time you're having sex second time you're having sex so yeah like any tips on that how to be you know more comfortable doing it we often talk sometimes we even point and laugh at people who are publicly sort of baroquely outrageously homophobic when they tumble out of the closet and it turns out that they've been having a lot of gay sex with male escorts. Not that there's anything wrong with that unless you are a politician who rails against <laughs> rails against rails into gay people and you're a hypocrite. And it's often the case that someone who's very publicly homophobic is privately homo and Similarly, in this case, your publicly, your ex, who is very publicly, very anti-femme, very femme-phobic, making fun of and disparaging guys who were effeminate in private, he was feminine and he hated himself for it. And so he hated other guys that he saw who were femme and he externalized that internal conflict and took it out on other people in the same way that homophobic political bullies take it out on gay people. Because they hate themselves and they're externalizing that internal conflict. Well, what to do? That, 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 that's not your question. That's just my take on your asshole ex. How do you get over him? Well, you continue to work through the anger. What he did to you was terrible. It's only been eight months. Sometimes it takes about as long as you were in a relationship to get over a relationship. And as they say, the quickest way to get over someone is to get under someone else. Or if you're a top, get on top of someone else. Not that you can't fuck somebody from underneath them, but you know what I mean. As for avoiding falling in love with douchebag guys in the future, there's really not a lot you can do. Douchebags are probably, you're 21 years old, there are probably more douchebags in your future. The trick is learning to show the douchebags the door more quickly once you realize they're douchebags. This guy, when he was, you know, attacking other gay men for being effeminate and then being very feminine in private with you, 
that was when you probably should have shown him the door. That was when he revealed to you flaws in his character and his judgment that wouldn't just manifest in that area, that it would spill out into other areas. That this shitty person who's doing and saying a shitty thing was probably then, therefore, by inference, capable of doing and saying other shitty things, you know, like cheating on you, like telling you when you found out that he was cheating on you, that he could easily replace you with one add on grinder, have 10 guys lined up outside the door. You wouldn't have been in this relationship long enough for him to say these shitty things to you and do this kind of lasting damage to your ego that he appears to have done if after he revealed himself early in the relationship to be a mess with this femphobic shit when he's femme in private, if you'd shown him the door then. As for the Dom Sub stuff, you need to detach that from your experience with this guy. You enjoy being the dominant partner in bed. There are healthy, sane, non-asshole, non-conflicted, non-messy guys out there who enjoy having a dominant partner in bed, who enjoy playing the submissive role. And the trick is to find those guys. You know, you don't want to bust out your fucking the shit out of somebody and slapping their ass and calling them names moves. You know, the first time you're getting together sexually, if it's tentative, if you didn't lead with that on the dating app that, that, that brought you together, that's something you're going to want to maybe roll out slowly as you build a more honest and, and a stronger sexual connection with a, a new partner. But it's nothing you have to feel conflicted about just because you're 21 years old. Your first experience with this kind of fucking, with you being the dominant top, you associate it with this guy and you're then turning around and wondering if there's something then suspect about it or tainted about it or pathological about it. No, there isn't. You had a kind of sex you enjoyed by coincidence with somebody who turned out not to deserve you sexually or at all in any way. And you can have that exact same kind of sex with a better and more loving and healthier partner in the future. And that will snip the association that Dom Subsex has for you right now with your shitty ex. Get out there, date better guys, find better guys, roll the kind of sex out that you enjoy having with a guy that you feel better about and safer with and can trust. And you will feel better about that sex, whether it's perfectly vanilla side by side or you're the dom top, pounding away on them and slapping their ass. Hi, Dan. So I married my amazing husband a few months ago, and everything is really good. We have a super healthy relationship. We have good communication. But we have this one ongoing issue that we're trying to resolve. He loves to smoke weed. It brings him joy. It relaxes him. And he likes how it frees his mind. And I get that. And I don't have anything against weed use in general. And I even myself take an edible once in a while just to go to sleep or relax. But the problem I'm having is that when my husband is high, he becomes slow. I can't have a normal conversation with him because his mind is just somewhere else. I find this super annoying and it's also a turn off to see him like that. I'm very attracted to intelligence and seeing this dumbed down version of him frustrates me. I try to be patient with him, but it's hard. We've tried different solutions. And at first I, I told him I'm willing to deal with it a couple times a week. So we got on this token system, but he felt um, restrained by it. 
And also it made him smoke way more than usual during those two nights, since he knew that he would be limited during the other five days. Then I had a miscarriage, and I think to make me feel better, he volunteered to go on a cleanse and to not smoke for a while. We didn't have a defined end date for the cleanse, and he made it to two months without issues. But then he hit that two-month mark, and all of a sudden, he was fiending for it like an addict. I mean, he had a temper tantrum, and nothing would make him feel better. So this past Friday, he smoked, and I just stayed away, and he hung out with the boys, and it was fine. Then Sunday, he smoked again, and uh, we watched a movie, and it was fine. And then last night on Monday, he smoked again. And, you know, we were trying to work out New Year's plans. We were doing other life stuff and he just wasn't with it. (laughs) So I was annoyed. So basically, it seems like if we need to talk about something while he's high, I get annoyed. And again, I try to be patient and practice kindness, but I find it difficult. And then he feels judged in turn. Uh, We've been talking about all of this a lot, and we haven't been able to come up with a great solution. Ultimately, it's a price of admission that I'm willing to pay to be with him. But at the same time, it's affecting our relationship. And, you know, so if we could come up with a compromise that works, I think we would both be happier. Joining me to help tackle this question, Lester Black, stranger staff writer and pot columnist. He's also written about pot for Rolling Stone, 538, High Times and other publications. Hey, Lester, thank you for coming in. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. So pot, is it something like kids, religion, basic sexual compatibility? You want to be on the same page about it before you get married, not after? That sounds like a good idea. It sounds like this caller is running into a problem that she should have seen before she got this marriage. We're assuming it was an arranged marriage and they didn't meet three months ago on the day of their wedding. One could assume, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, pot doesn't change you into some mutation in a different person. It's just showing a different side of her husband uh, that she appears to kind of detest. <laughs> the slow, stupid, lethargic side. The log stupid side, the pot addled side. Right, right. So I don't know. I, I think it's, a, it's, it's a, a, a real warning sign in this marriage. If three months in, you're already having such problems she with your husband. It might be a price of admission she's willing to pay. But uh, that concept, as I have sort of conceived of it and unpacked it and detailed it here, you know, when you pay the price of admission, then you stop complaining about it. Like you don't pay the price of admission and then continue to try to assert control. Like if the price of admission you're willing to pay is they can't pick up a dirty sock and throw it in a hamper, so I'm just going to do it, you don't get to complain about the dirty socks anymore. Like that's the price right. of admission. You, you, you put away the guilt once you get, you know, pay the price of admission. That's what makes sense. Right. Uh, so if him being like dominant on the couch once or twice a week is the price of admission you're willing to pay, then let him be dominant on the couch and don't call me. That sounds right. Um, I, I would say, I would <laughs> but say, we yeah. both have pro pot biases. Right. We do. And, and I would say, you know, it, there are some things they can try. I think this idea that you're only going to smoke pot once a week and then the other six days are mine is a bad idea. I think what a better idea is to look more at what kind of pot you're smoking. Maybe try some different strains. You know, pot is a really diverse plant with a lot of different effects, but most of the pot Americans smoke is actually very similar. It's really high in THC. It's really high in the same set of terpenes, which are these aromatic compounds that a lot of people don't know about, but actually have a really big effect on what kind of high you get. Uh, They're really the same in terms of what Americans are smoking. Um, So I think, you know, 
they should really look at what kind of pot he's smoking. So he may be smoking a strain that is a two by four to the back of the head and he can find a strain that is less of a two by four to the back of the head. Right. Exactly. That gets him just as high and provides him with as much pleasure. I think there's a lot of there, a lot of strains out there that can give him a lot of pleasure that don't have 25% THC and are loaded with one set of terpenes that really gives you couch lock and drowsy eyes and not a quick mind. Well, what's terpenes? So terpenes, these are these aromatic compounds um, like myrcene and limonene uh, that are in all plants, but they're really important in pot because they give pot its flavor and they're found chemically to affect how you get high. So uh, I would encourage them to look for strains that have um, citrus in the name and citrus in the aroma. Citrus terpenes are known chemically to really be more activating of your mind. So they make your mind kind of race. They make you get more energy and talk faster and want to talk more rather than shutting down and burying yourself into the couch. So I would look for strains that uh, I think citrus is a good idea. I think uh, looking for lower THC strains, because if he loves to smoke a lot of pot, it's nice when the pot you're smoking isn't like moonshine. So look for lower THC, higher CBD. But if you get lower THC, are you going to just smoke more pot to get as high as you would with a higher THC? You might have some of that, but I think you can often in these lower THC strains feel the effects in different ways. It's like if you really enjoy having a drink, but the only drink you have access to is... Uh, vodka or moonshine even worse, you're going to have a different effect than if maybe you have access to a 4% beer or a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. You might get these interesting effects you're looking for without also, like you said, getting hit on the back of the head with a 2x4. And there is perhaps a little bit of a placebo effect going on. Like I am relaxed because I smoke pot because I had a little bit of pot, that, the, that there is that ritual. You know, there's that ritual around cocktails. That the, there's that ritual around having a beer. There's that social element of it. Even when you're alone, like, you know, I'm a big tea drinker. I sometimes make fancy tea for myself at home alone. And it's a whole, like, thing. And it all doing that thing relaxes me. Um, and I, there may be some, like, social, even solo social element to the pot used for him and maybe a lesser, a less powerful strain, less of those terp. Terpenes, yeah. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I mean, rolling a joint relaxes me before I even smoke it. I'm just Mm -hmm. getting into a place where I have this ritual that is relaxing and I'm not working and I'm enjoying life. So this is a great practical suggestion. Rather than attempt to limit the numbers of times a week he gets high, no infantilizing token system where you're in control of where and when. Exactly. Experiment with different strains. Yeah, and if they live in a legal state, go talk to a bud tender about these terpenes, about the ways you can get pot without getting the same type of pot that most Americans get, which is really just, like you said, getting hit on the back of the head with a two by four. I'm a little concerned that, and this sometimes happens in, and I see this elsewhere. And I'm not saying that caller. I'm not saying this is what you did or this is what's going on in your relationship. But it is a thing that people sometimes do that there's something about their partner that they don't like that they tolerate, you know, maybe it's a friend that they don't like that they tolerate. Maybe it's a hobby that they don't like that they tolerate. Maybe it's pot use that they don't like, but they tolerate. And then they get married and then they say that stops. Then it becomes a much bigger problem because there's something subconscious going on sometimes. Sometimes it's malicious and knowing, but sometimes it's just subconscious. Well, now that we're married and you can't, you know, and the idea is it's for life and extricating yourself in this relationship would be a publicly embarrassing nightmare and a protracted legal drama, I can now edit you in a way that I couldn't edit you before we were married. And you want to guard against that. You want to make sure, caller, that is not what you're doing, that you didn't lay in wait until marriage to then begin to rip things out of your partner that you didn't like before you got married. This is part of who he was. This is who you married. 
Totally. Yeah. And this is part of who he is. When you smoke pot, you don't become a totally different person that is not the person you married. That's the person you married, the person who likes to smoke pot and likes to get a little bit more relaxed and a little bit dumber, you know, because he enjoys that. That's part of the person you married. And three months in, you're not going to be doing that thing that you'll be doing 25 years in, which is sometimes you're home alone together. You know, just because he's stoned on the couch doesn't mean you have to be in the same room with him. If he wants to get completely blazed and watch a movie and you don't enjoy sitting with him when he's completely fucked up on pot, you're not obligated to sit next to him on the couch 24 hours a day just because you're married now. You can go do something else in the house and then circle back maybe when he's not so fucked up or making breakfast in the morning. Yeah, sounds good to me. We hang out for a couple more questions. We've got more pot questions. Yeah, let's keep talking. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I am a 28-year-old pansexual female from Toronto. Uh, I recently found out that my fiancé and I are, are expecting a baby, and we're very excited. I'm about seven weeks in, and morning sickness has started just taking away all of the good things in my life. Um, I'm unable to sleep. I'm unable to eat. I ended up getting some CBD oils and THC oils from an aunt who had made some. And I've been smoking a bit of marijuana also to kind of get through the nausea and help me get through my work day. And it's, it's not been easy, uh, whatsoever, but it's the only thing that seems to get me to keep my food down and to be able to help me leave the house. And in my opinion, isn't, hasn't been excessive. It's really only when I can't function physically. Now, I recently had a friend approach me and I guess a little bit of background. We were very close when my lifestyle was more the partying type of lifestyle. We did, did a lot of drinking together, a lot of partying together. Um, over the last year, my fiance and I have taken a shift into more healthy activities um, going to the gym, drinking less, going to bed early, which is kind of a product of, of those activities. And, uh, and that particular friend seems to have just distanced herself in, in that we don't really align with the same lifestyle anymore as well. I just got a text from her out of nowhere basically saying she's been holding this in for a while, uh, but she really doesn't think I should be smoking we during my pregnancy and she's concerned and she just feels like it needed to be said. So what I just really want to know is, number one, do you think I'm doing something harmful or wrong? And number two, do you think that this type of unsolicited advice is welcome, especially when someone hasn't really been there for you as a friend for over a year while trying to make healthier choices and just comes out of the blue telling me that she doesn't think I'm making a healthy choice when I've kind of held my tongue with what she's been doing with her lifestyle and preferring to go out drinking and, you know, do all of that stuff over really hanging out with us anytime or having just like a nice dinner and chat, which would be accommodating to our new lifestyle. So Lester, is there any research on the effects of pot use when you're pregnant on the fetus? Uh, yeah, there's some, but like all pot questions, there's not enough. Um, but, but here's what we know about pot and pregnancy. We know that THC can pass through the placenta into the fetus. We know that if you're breastfeeding, it can pass into your breast milk and into your child. And we know also that pot use is actually increasing amongst 
pregnant women, um, especially pregnant women who experience heavy morning sickness. Um, And because of what we know about how THC can go into the the fetus and into the young child, um, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists encouraged women to not consume pot while pregnant. But these health effects are not very well understood. And there's actually no causal link between pot consumption and negative birth outcomes. There uh, appears to be a connection between... So there's uh, not premature births related to pot. There's not uh, underweight births related to pot or miscarriages well, related to pot. So so the one, the one big study on this found that there was a correlation between women who smoke pot while they're pregnant and lower birth weights. Mm-hmm. But the authors of that study said there was not enough data to show that there was a causal link because those women who were going to give birth to lower birth weight babies might just be more likely to smoke pot. And interesting, what the authors did not find any correlation between was smoking pot and leading to babies who are more likely to be in the neonatal intensive unit uh, or smoking pot and leading to having more likely to have babies who uh, have sudden infant death syndrome or reduced academic outcomes later in life. So those things were found to not even be linked at all. And there's no known sort of pot equivalent of fetal alcohol syndrome. Exactly. And fetal that's... exposure to THC doesn't have the same sort of uh, negative impacts on brain development that alcohol exposure does. There's no evidence of that. And what there is a lot of evidence is, is that alcohol and smoking, uh, drinking a lot of alcohol and smoking cigarettes does have a really clear link to those outcomes in your child. So when we're talking about this caller's uh, unsolicited advice from their now distant friend, It's not the same as if you find out a distant friend has been binge drinking and they're pregnant and you're like, you know what, I need to reach out because there's a clear, you know, life on the line here. That's not what's happening. It would be interesting if there could be, you know, know, the the problem with all of the, with this sort of thing is there's just not a lot of research, not a lot of data to draw on when it comes to pot use and smoking or pot use and anything else because it was legal to study for decades and decades and decades. It was just criminalized. But it would be interesting to compare and contrast the relative risk, you know, if somebody is experiencing really terrible morning sickness, really terrible nausea, and not therefore eating, and is then undernourished, they're also undernourishing the developing fetus inside them. And what's the greater risk to the fetus? A little bit of THC to get mom eating because it's helping her get over the nausea in the morning, or the the exposure in utero to THC. Right. That's a really important point to make, that this mother is not just getting a buzz because she wants a buzz. She's taking medicine that helps her in this time when she needs help. Uh, It's not the same as cigarettes and alcohol, which is not providing you any medical benefit. The last thing she asked us to tackle is this type of unsolicited advice. Welcome. I think you know the answer to that question, caller. It doesn't sound, from the tone of your voice, that it was particularly welcome. Yeah, not welcome. I don't think appropriate either. It also seems like there's some kind of lingering anger in this friend about uh, using drugs between them. And she's now, you know, finding an area where she then can reverse that guilt and say, look at you now. You're not doing the healthy lifestyle that you said you were doing. So Right. We used to party together and do drugs together recreationally and probably hit them a lot harder than you're hitting them now. And then maybe she feels or maybe call her. Maybe you actually unintentionally did kind of lay a bit of a guilt trip on her or a bit of like we're living a healthier lifestyle now. And, you know, sometimes when people do that, they, when they outgrow whatever is what they were doing, they maybe sometimes telegraph an unintentional value judgment about what they had been doing before. So their friends who are still doing what they were doing, still taking E and going to raves or whatever, feel judged sometimes because you did judge them by saying, oh, I'm like, I've outgrown that. I'm past that. That was healthy and undangerous. I'm living a better life now. And sometimes there's a value judgment bottle, you know, wrapped up in that 
quote unquote personal progress that you made. And it could be like Lester said, like could just be your friend reaching out to say, you know what? You gave all this up and made me feel bad about still doing it. And now you're having some, no, 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 you can't have any. And then laying that pregnant woman guilt trip on your head, which is bullshit. It's bullshit. Uh, and it's, it's not welcome, not appropriate. Let's talk about Dick. <laughs> of course. Hey, Dan, gay guy on the East Coast here, uh, and I'm kind of a naked person. I like to go to naked events, everything from bar nights to hikes to private events at people's houses. Sometimes they turn sexual, but not always. Typically, it's just guys hanging out naked. I am what you'd call a grower, not a shower. And I recently learned that marijuana turns me into a shower, which is great. It hangs like I've always dreamed it would. My only issue is my eyes go full stony baloney right away. They are red and half closed. And I just, that's just how they look when I high at all. And so I would love to have the showered look without being high or on the verge of like a full on boner. Do you know of anything that could maybe help me out and any of us other growers out there just to see what happens? Okay, so while there's not too much research on THC exposure in uterus, I assume there's just tons of research on the effects of uh, pot use and the appearance of male genitalia. There's tons, you know. <laughs> it just, it's been well documented. Uh, Is this a thing? Is this thing about this dude's thing a thing? I don't think it's a I, thing. I don't know. I mean, people report different things about what happens to their dick when they smoke weed. Some people say they uh, cannot get hard at all and it gets tiny and they get worried. Others are like, I can only uh, perform when I'm smoking pot. I think it's more where your head is going rather than what your body is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, does, does smoking pot increase blood flow? That's usually, you know, the, the difference between showing and growing or growing and showing is blood flow to the genitalia. Does actually, is there any research on, on pot use and circulation? It actually lowers blood pressure. Um, and that's what's happening to his eyes. So, uh, that's why, you know, people who smoke weed, uh, almost always get red eyes. And it's also why weed is a really good treatment for glaucoma. Um, because it lowers the blood pressure in your uh, capillaries and veins in your eyes and it turns them red. Um, I think, you know, if this guy really has this beautiful dick when he smokes weed, he probably doesn't have to worry about his eyes because no one's going to be looking at his <laughs> eyes. Uh, but if he really wants to cover all his bases, there's a really simple cure. Get some eye drops that are for eye redness. They will immediately raise the, lo- the blood pressure in your eyes and shrink those veins and turn them back to non-red veins. Um, See, so I'm learning something from you. I always thought the red eye thing was kind of about dehydration in the same way you, same way you get dry mouth. I didn't know it was about circulation. I always just thought the drops were to hydrate your eyes, not to like increase blood pressure. It's blood pressure, yeah. Because glaucoma, well, yeah, going back to the glaucoma point, um, when someone deals with glaucoma is what they have is too high of blood pressure in their eyes. And so that's why smoking weed lowers the eye pressure in your eyes. Um, and then for us who don't have glaucomas, it's kind of a negative outcome because it lowers it to the point of then your uh, capillaries are turning red. So yeah, eye drops will solve that. Um, another thing to experiment with is getting lower THC weed. Uh, THC is that active compound that's turning your eyes red. So if you try weed that's higher in CBD or higher in other interesting cannabinoids that you probably haven't heard of, like THCV or CBG, um, but not THC, that could maybe get you that dick you want without the red eyes you don't want. Um, But also, simple solution, get some eye drops. I didn't know any of that. One thing I do know for sure is there's not enough pot in the world to get me at a naked party or on a naked hike. Nice. Me neither. (laughs) Lester Black, Stranger Staff writer and pot columnist. 
Check out his stuff at thestranger.com. Also, you can find his writing on Rolling Stone, 538, High Times, and other publications. Thank you so much. That was really fun. Let's do that again. Thanks, Dan. Let's smoke some weed. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old uh, straight woman living in New York City. I've been seeing this guy for about two weeks, and we slept together about um, three or four times. I really like him, and I feel like we have a lot in common. Um, we have instant attraction. And our first date lasted about four hours. My question is, he has said to me, he thinks that we are incompatible sexually and that he likes foreplay and he thinks that I don't really like foreplay. I'm a bit of a late bloomer sexually in relationships. I lost my virginity about a year ago and I've only been with two other people. So he said that he really likes to go down on girls and he likes the same done to him. And I have the attitude that I'm not so like figuring out who I am sexually, but I'm kind of down to try whatever. And so like the only thing that I know that I like is PIV. The experiences that I've had with um, guys going down on me or fingering haven't been positive. So I tend to be a little nervous with that. The first experience I had having sex, I was like super uncomfortable with my body and the guy told me that he'd be more attracted to me if I lost weight and it was just like very damaging. So I am already kind of uncomfortable with my body. So the things that he wants to do, I'm happy to do, but he thinks that because I'm not jumping to for him to go down on me that we're incompatible. Is this a reason to end a relationship? I really like him. I have really good time hanging out with him and I know that he really likes me I don't look at it as like a yes or no with these things I look at it as evolving like I'm still getting to know him I'm still getting comfortable I just am not familiar with doing these things I haven't been with someone long enough to be comfortable I gave him a blowjob and like it was a positive experience for me and like I would do it again but like my first instinct isn't to give a blowjob this is a really difficult question because on the one hand I wish he could be more patient. I don't know if you've told him about your terrible experience with a partner who wanted to go down on you but also told you that he'd be more attracted to you if you lost weight or whatever other negative experiences you had with men who made you feel uncomfortable in your own body or shamed you or fingered you or went down on you in ways that gave them pleasure and did not give you pleasure and left you with you know tension. But that does seem like something a, a giving and patient person and you wouldn't want to be in a relationship with anyone who wasn't a giving and patient person should be able to hear and hang out perhaps a little bit longer in the relationship and wait a little bit longer than two weeks to allow the person that they're with who may have some issues or inhibitions from previous negative experiences to relax and get comfortable with them. And if it's only been two weeks, he hasn't given you that time. But I'm not sure that you've asked him for that time. On the other hand, we've been hammering away at this concept of enthusiastic consent for a very long time and it's possible this guy has picked up on your tension. You gave him a blowjob. But if he sensed that you weren't enjoying this experience, if you were giving him a blowjob not because that was something you wanted to give him or enjoyed giving him and took pleasure from the pleasure that you were providing him but it was something that you felt obligated to do and it was awkward for you and therefore awkward for him – isn't that the sort of sex that we're encouraging people not to engage in by sticking the word enthusiastic in front of consent? Shouldn't he deserve perhaps some credit 
not for framing this in the way that he did. You're bad at foreplay or you don't enjoy foreplay. Therefore, I don't want to have sex with you. But if he needs to be with someone or wants to be with somebody who's more open and also has picked up on your tension and doesn't understand it because perhaps you haven't really made yourself vulnerable. You haven't really explained to him like why fingering or oral sex is a little bit more difficult for you, at least now at age 23 at this stage of the relationship, then it's hard for me to fault him for perhaps wanting to end the relationship or, or assuming that you two are sexually incompatible, particularly if you haven't told him where it is you're at, why you're there, where you're coming from and where you'd like to get. If there is a future that you can imagine for yourself where you can be more relaxed and uninhibited and oral and digital penetration and toys and fantasy play are all things that you might be able to enjoy in addition to PIV, but you're young and relatively inexperienced and you've had some negative experiences. And so PIV has been your default and go-to where you felt safe and comfortable. If you can say all that to him, and I think you should say all that to him. And if he responds in a positive and constructive way, then maybe he's someone that you could relax and enjoy and expand your sexual repertoire with. If he reacts in a negative, selfish, impatient way, then he's just a guy who's going to leave you with additional inhibitions like the shitty guys that you've had sex with already and you should thank him for exiting your life. So be radically honest with him. Err on the side of verbal diarrhea. Really lay it all out. Really spew it all out. Push it all out for him. And then, depending on who he reacts, he's either qualified, he's either earned more sex with you going forward, or he's disqualified himself. And you're in the power position then because you get to decide whether or not you want to pursue this with him based on his reaction to you telling him the whole truth about you. Hello, Danathan. Please help me. I haven't been able to get laid in three years because I'm a grower, not a shower. I live in the fucking tundra of the United States, and so my dick is very very shrunken most of the time unless it's erect but it's really fucking hard for me to get it up because i get in my head about being a grower and not a shower which whatever fine not a huge deal because i can just eat the pussy uh but i suck ass at eating the pussy one or two because i live in such a conservative weird fucking city i guess half of the women or maybe it's just because they're younger I don't know. They're like, yeah, I don't like that. Let's just fuck. So then I'm like, all right, let's just not have sex because I can't get into this because I feel like you're judging my fucking inch long dick right now. So yeah, anyway. And then the other group of women that I'm with, you know, I'm like, fuck it. My dick's small. Who cares? I'm just going to eat your pussy. So I do it. And then I suck at it. And they end up pulling me back up and being like, hey, let's just fuck. And then I'm back to square one. Sometimes I'm like, actually, most of the time I say, hey, uh, can you like help me? Tell me, you know, how to do this, lead me down the right path. And then either I suck at following directions or they suck at giving them. Uh, and then I'm, you know, back to the original thing where uh, I'm not getting laid and I can't get into it and it sucks and whatever. So I try to get better at it. I read the book, She Comes First, which kind of helped. Still suck at eating pussy, though. So I was looking to the listeners, maybe, to give me some 
more practical tips on how to get better at eating pussy, that'd be awesome. It's just, it's really hard to get better at something when you don't have a partner who can just let you eat them out. I've asked some, I have a lot of close women friends and I'm like, hey, can I just try eating you out? And they're like, no, you're a psycho, which (laughs) maybe I am. Um, And then the other thing, uh, how do I get out of my head about my tiny non-erect penis? I know that sex is not all penis centric and that's totally fine with me, but I feel like most of my partners think that it is penis centric. And so then I feel really judged and they're like, why can't you fuck me? I don't care. I could go for a hand job or, you know, whatever the fuck, it doesn't matter to me, but um, I'm trying to be accommodating. Well, right out of the gate, I want to direct you to my colleague, Katie Herzog's piece in the September 25th issue of The Stranger, How to Eat Pussy, A Guide to Cunnilingus. Maybe it'll supplement what you learned reading Ian Kerner's terrific book, She Comes First. All right. If you are a grower, not a shower, and you are getting into bed with people and you're self-conscious about the size of your non-erect penis, that's an indication, at least to me, that you are not growing in those situations. Because if you were growing, then you wouldn't be so worried about what you were showing because you wouldn't be showing your non-erect penis in a sexual situation because you would be aroused and displaying growth. So maybe this is an erectile dysfunction problem, maybe in a sexual situation, your nerves and self-consciousness get the better of you, you get performance anxiety, and then even though you know that you grow and you show a much bigger dick, when you grow, you're too nervous and and it's short-circuiting your erections. I would encourage you to think about availing yourself of the miracle of ED drugs, which absolutely have a physiological effect. But for some guys, they have both a physiological effect. They make it easier for a guy to obtain and sustain an erection, as they say. But they also have a placebo effect. They can be little confidence boosters. You believe that you're going to get an erection because you took the pill and that makes it easier for you to actually get the erection. Now, if you're running around asking every young woman that you see out there on the tundra, wherever it is that you are, if you can practice on them by eating their pussy because you want to get better at eating pussy because you're a grower, not a shower, and you're self-conscious and you're having a hard time getting it up during initial sexual encounters, yeah, that's going to send most women running off in the opposite direction. Women don't want to be practiced on like cadavers in a medical school. Women want to be the focus of your sexual attentions if they're sexually attracted to you. And if you're hitting on friends who don't see you in a sexual way, who aren't sexually attracted to you, that's not okay. You don't want to do that. And I don't want to say no woman will ever agree to this, but very, very few. You will have to ask and offend and drive off a million women before you find one out there on the tundra who is up for this or down for this or thinks this is a good idea. I would encourage you instead, if there are sex workers in your area, to go see a sex worker. Go see someone where you're paying for their time and maybe you're paying for their assistance and their instruction and they will be patient and they will allow you to eat their pussy because you are hiring them for that. And they will do a download about what works for them subjectively because different people like to have their pussies eaten in different ways. But at least from one person or from several people, if you see a handful of sex workers, you will get a download because that's what you're paying for. Not just the pussy, but the feedback. And maybe then you'll have a frame of reference and a skill set when you go into sex with someone where you aren't paying for their time. 
All right, before we get to your response calls, listener thoughts on what I coulda, shoulda, and maybe woulda said, let's read some of your tweets about the show. Chris Schmid tweets, hey, at fake Dan Savage, you and the hashtag Savage Lovecast are invaluable to me as a bartender. Now, whenever anyone asks me for relationship advice, I just tell them to listen to you. Thank you for saving me a lot of time and energy. You are welcome, Chris, and thank you for spreading the word about the show. Scott Kayser tweets, in episode 693 of the Savage Lovecast, the younger gay couple treated badly by the older gay couple sounds less about age and more about means. If you shift perspective to accumulated wealth, it seems more in line with the sense of entitlement that can accompany money. Yeah, could be that. Or it could be that some of everybody, rich, poor, old, young, gay, straight, some of everybody is or some of everybody are assholes. And since trying to predict assholery based on things like age, income, race, religion, sexuality is assholery itself, I think it's better to take people as they come, to judge them as individuals, and to give people the benefit of the doubt, of course, without disabling your bullshit detectors. And finally, Yale1983S tweets, just got myself a late birthday gift, a Magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast, needed my fake Dan Savage fix. Thank you for subscribing, Yale, and Happy birthday. Okay, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, this is in response to the woman who was uh, having the um, moral quandary revolving around um, the believe all women hashtag. I liked your response that instead of uh, just across the board, believe women we should take women seriously. I just wanted to suggest a little bit uh, of a catchier hashtag of listen to women. So I just wanted to put it out there. Hashtag listen to women and then decide whether or not to believe them on an individual basis. This is in response to episode 695, the European guy calling in and the ex-wife being silent and cold after the divorce. Dan was kind of hard ass saying fairness has nothing to do with it, you can't get everything you want, chill the fuck out, but he is right. It is painful to accept, but you have no other choice. Let it go, focus on the future, move on, etc. We don't know her side of the story, but I say it's okay to feel betrayed and angry. She sounds vindictive. Moving in across the street from you, flaunting another guy in front of you, there are other places she can live. Take your anger out at the gym, yell on it, on a mountaintop, but you can't direct your anger at her. It's a lost battle. You basically got hosed. Have a beer with a friend to lament the situation. Dan has good advice to move on, but you also need that best friend as well. Say, yeah, you deserve better after seven years. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller who was bored of sex in her four-year relationship, and especially the conversation that you had with Wednesday Martin related to that. Wednesday Martin said something multiple times that you did not pick up on or comment on, and that is she used the word cohabiting over and over. So here's the secret. Don't live with your boyfriend. Nothing will destroy the woman's sex drive faster than all the annoyances of living with a partner and getting used to each other and being together 24-7. I'm in a long-term relationship. I'm still very hot for my boyfriend, and I don't live with him. He suggested it, and... It's not something that I want to do. That's the secret. 
And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you have a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Or better yet, you can record your comments and questions yourself using the Voice Memo app on your smartphone and email them to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Please try to keep them under three minutes. This week, my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival Hump continues its spring tour in Oakland, Los Angeles, and Miami with additional stops in Long Beach and Palm Springs. Head over to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets and find out where we're headed next. Listen to me every week on Blabbermouth, the Strangers Week in Review podcast hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Check out Lester Black's writing at TheStranger.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.